how do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley. I have a very special guest on today. I have Paul Powers. Paul is the founder of FISNA, the world's leading geometric search platform. He was a Forbes 30 under 30. He's a serial founder. He's in his early 30s, a young guy. He's been featured on Fox Business News, Cheddar, and was also a TED speaker. Paul, welcome, man. Happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Quite an impressive resume you got there. Serial founder. Um, So I always like to start things off with a quick rundown. Uh, and so I'm going to fast fire four questions at you. Just love you to quick answer. And then I want to get a little bit deeper into you and your story and your journey. So what's your current go to market strategy? We uh, are a SaaS first company. So we uh, have a SaaS platform that um, is essentially just enterprise SaaS. So companies pay us an annual recurring basis for um, seats and licenses of our our core tool called Fizna. And we have a consumer product called Fangs, which is available to the public. It's free. But there's a connector between the two, which is something called Things Workspace and Beta, and that works as our bottom-up funnel. So there's enterprise top-down sales, and then bottom-up from um, both from SaaS, but in this oh, case from the consumer side. I love side. that, man. I was just reading that. So you got the product-led growth compounded with the enterprise growth as well, right? Correct. Awesome. Uh, team size. What's your team size? Seventy-four. Okay, and then we just can you give a quick description of your solution? I know you highlighted it. Um, in terms of how it's set up, but just really quick understanding about what what it is, what it does, the outcomes it produces. So what it is, uh, FISNA is short for physical DNA. And what we're able to do that's really unique is take data uh, or take 3D models. So representation of a physical part, turn that into code. So computers can understand it just like if it were text, for instance. And we can show you how parts are related. Um, you, we can show you... Um, but like we make predictions based on how they're related and we can search on them based on how they're related. So the common use cases for them, so how it's used. Uh, number one, first and foremost, uh, it's to make engineers more productive. So your average designer, whether they're in mechanical engineering or an animation, they're probably only about roughly one fifth as productive as your average software developer. And the reason why is they don't have copy paste, they, they don't have reuse. So we eliminate that problem for them. After that, and a lot of companies will expand that into supply chain. So because, amongst other things, they have so many duplicate models, they very often are ordering the same part unknowingly from multiple vendors, which means that their supply chain's not resilient, but also means that they're spending way more than they need to. You know, they're ordering 30 parts from 30 companies instead of 30 parts from one. Um, they're not getting the wholesale value, and they're not getting the best price. So we eliminate that problem. And thirdly, uh, it's after the part's actually been made and it's in the real world physically, not just the design. People have, uh, the, the question still remains, what is this and how does it relate to everything else? So we've developed tools such as 2D to 3D, in other words, take a picture of something in front of you, we'll identify what that is very specifically, not just the category, but down to the exact part number, um, alternatives to it, how it can be used, and um, even predictions such as which part might be the right replicate, uh, replica or alternative to that part. So those are the main use cases. And within the consumer platform, in addition to being able to just, you know, the general search capability, 
a lot of people are now using it as a platform on which to collaborate because the ability that we have to show changes between models um, within a tool that we have in beta right now called Thanks Workspace, they essentially have something that's like a GitHub, but for 3D. So it's the same core technology, but it allows them to iterate and work together regardless as to what their um, what, what their uh, core tool is, if they're using CAD uh, software to develop something for mechanical engineering or, or for, for a mechanical reason, or if they're designing something for the metaverse, let's say, or they're using Blender or um, something for animation, they can work together and actually have overlap between these models and do it in real time. And I know that's a lot of things, but the primary use case really is uh, being able to search geometrically for a model with a model to promote part reuse. That is so cool. So there's a lot of different ways we go down and, and drill into that deeper, I, I think. So have, have you watched the book of Boba Fett at all? Have you watched that series at all or no? No, I have not. It's it's on Disney Plus. And my, my son likes it. You know, it's from The Mandalorian, like a spinoff of The Mandalorian. And so what I envisioned when you were talking about, like, look at a look at a part in real time, see where it is, collaborate. One of the things he did is he had a droid look at it was like a, a speeder, you know, basically an aircraft that they had and he would scan it and he's like, what part do I need? And then he would pull up the part that he needed that would fit in there. Is it not like you're building droid planes or anything like that, but like that kind of concept where if someone needs a part for something, they can scan it, look at it and then pull it up or my way off beat on this. No, you're, you're, you're correct. So you'd be able to search basically the way that business designed is to allow you to find anything with whatever input you have. So if you have a picture, a 3D scan, another model that's already designed, or even if you don't have any of that and you just have something that you can describe, maybe it's not even in front of you and you have to abstractly search for it. Well, we can make it easy to find that part because of predictions. So you might not call it what the part number is called or even anything that's in the, like anything that's a keyword for it, but you might just, let's say that you'd look for part XYZ. Well, we know that part XYZ, uh, the, the, the part that you're referring to, also has a counterpart called, let's say, ABC that mm -hmm. is either identical or extremely similar. And we can show you, hey, you have alternatives here, right? You can use either one of these. And if there are differences, we can show you where they are and how that affects how you would use them. Wow, that's awesome. All right, we're, we're going to circle back to that because I'm intrigued. Uh, and then are you bootstrapped or funded? We're funded. Okay, excellent. All right, man. Well, I'm excited to dig into your, your solution a little bit later. But what I think would be really important now is to get your your to in, and have an understanding of your journey here. So, like, how did you get to this point? You're a serial entrepreneur. You started multiple companies even when you were a kid. Right. Um, so I I'd, I'd just love to hear how you got to this point and, and like where you got here or how you got here, I should say. But like kind of before we did that, what you just described was like a lot, a lot of different mm -hmm. areas, multiple different go to markets, you know, with PLG and, and enterprise. Um, so in terms of like, where is the company at now? Can you just give us an overview on where you're at now, what you're focused on, what are your top priorities and use that as a jumping off point, And then we'll rewind and go back in time in terms of the journey and how you got here. Sure. So the top priority for the company right now is, uh, you know, First and foremost, we're focused on our customers. So we're focused on uh, the, the enterprise sales part of our business. That being said, uh, they're the, the bottoms-up funnel, if you will, the, the, the things go to market, is, is very crucial because it helps us to cover the gap between you know, the, the layman uh, or, or the hobbyist uh, or the enthusiast all the way up to companies that are tier 
five, four, three, two, et cetera. Not, they're not in that enterprise segment. So uh, it really is a, t- a two-part strategy and it is complicated, but the reason why you, uh, it's important to do that, and if you talk to any founder who's built something that truly is a, ca- a new category, they're making a new market, what you'll find is that bottoms up uh, creates Comp- uh, serious competition later, right? Like if you just do bottoms up, you will have other more established companies going after the enterprises trying to lock you out. And then those enterprises will have downward pressure and it'll be a fight for a long time. If you just go top down, a company with more money can go bottoms up. They can say, well, let's, uh, okay, you're focused on these large, complicated deals that take a while to close. We will go after the, we'll, we'll create something that maybe is only half as good, but we'll make it uh, cheap or free and we'll try to catch or capture a larger market space that way. So the way to uh, capture a new market is you need to have a little bit of both. Now you can't, you know, I'm a big believer in focus, so don't get me wrong. It's not like I believe you can conquer all, uh, like you can focus on a million things. I'm a big believer in focusing on one thing. But the way that we're approaching it is by having most of our focus uh, in terms of manpower, in terms of resources going into enterprise, reusing the the, the capabilities that we create for enterprise uh, to make them available for the consumer market, and then building in um, uh, building a funnel that is valuable to the consumers, but all, uh, so the capability would be a workspace that's valuable to them, but also um, makes them interested in, hey, would I actually be more interested in the enterprise use case if, uh, or, you know, enterprise or, or small to medium business size, you know, paid use case. So it's more of a development effort on the thank side, and it's more of an all, a full company effort, I would say, on the enterprise side. I'm, it's more complicated, but I'm giving you the simplest version that I can. No, that's, that's good, man. That's good, because you your your earlier on in your journey just based on when you were founded and so um that's that's pretty cool that you're approaching it that way and i've seen a lot of written about that and i've talked to a lot of my guests and then like one of my things that <clears throat> my ninja skills is like i help companies scale through enterprise sales really because mm-hmm. that's 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 what i do and so you, one thing i would tell you though is you'd be surprised how many companies mess up the enterprise sales top-down motion? Like yeah. big companies. So um, totally. it happens all the time. So so let me ask you this. In light that you're smaller, your focus is on the enterprise side, you're, you're supplementing it with PLG, or I keep calling it PLG, but the the, the bottom up, we'll just call it PLG just for, just for simplicity. Just play along with me on that, man. Um, so what's the biggest, the single biggest challenge that you have then with the enterprise sales motion or the top-down selling motion in light that you're a smaller organization. You're not tiny, right? But you're a smaller organization. What's the biggest challenge that you run into with that? The biggest challenge by far is that what what we do is something that is very, very foreign to people when they first hear about it. When we tell them what we're able to do for... uh, give you an example. If if, Let's say that your company has... um, Let's say you're an automotive company and you have 50 whatever, 50 million models that you've designed over the years. And you're used to the idea, like searching takes your average engineer, maybe 30 to 50% of their time is spent searching for parts. And very often they don't find us, they just redesign it. And and you've been living with like this for the past several decades. And there are tools that you've spent a fortune on that are supposed to help you just by making it easier to tag uh, a part so that maybe it's easier to find it. And you're talking about very small percent increments in value. Then someone comes along and says, okay, all you need to do is th- uh, run all these models through this, this tool and everyone will find everything all the time. 
we don't care how it's tanked. Um, that's, it sounds like it's too good to be true. It sounds, it sounds unrealistic. And the question that they come back with is how, you know, the way that CAD works uh, or, or the way that these 3d models are comp- uh, comp- built, um, wouldn't allow that, right? If you, if we were to use the, just how the, the, um, like if you use the, the CAD tools own program to, um, which is basically step-by-step instructions to put together a 3d model, you can build the same 3d model in 50 ways. So how can I, how can we possibly search that effectively? And the answer is we don't care about that. We do it very differently. And it, it, the outcome is that we can find all parts that way. So what we find when we go into these companies is that, um, everyone loves the concept. The biggest question we get is, is that real? So part of our process is not just to demo something because we could be, as far as they're concerned, how do, we, how do they know that that's real, right? But to um, invite them to send us whatever models they want, whether, I mean, they can be their own models uh, if they're worried about sending a company those models without, uh, you know, having a contract in place, they can send models they found randomly uh, or designed just for this. And we'll show them live what we're capable of doing. And that typically gets us past that that hurdle. But very often in a big enough company, you're not doing that demo once. You're doing it several times because you Mm -hmm. have to show, you know, the main contact that it works. They they tell their friends and they don't believe that person. So then you have to do it again. (laughs) And so that that is the biggest challenge is that something that people... um, The the problem is dramatic. It's it's, it's a huge issue and um, and an extremely costly issue for these companies. But it's not something that they, uh, it, it sounds too good to be true. And it's not something that is easy for them to believe without seeing it. That's, re- to be totally honest, that is the number one problem. Being a smaller company, sure, we're dealing with CAD models, which is like the uh, one of the most valuable assets a company has. So yeah, that is also a concern. They have lots of questions about security. But that's not really a blocker because we can overcome that very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, it really just is getting them to believe that we can do what we say we can which is easy enough to prove. Well, that's good that you have a proof mechanism that's super easy. Do you, are the the deal sizes over, on average, over six figures for like those type of companies or? It depends very much on the size of the company and the number of people, models. I mean, there there are variables that come into play. Yeah, because, well, and here's where my head was going with that. Like, like the number one, do you know what the number one fear is when someone's making a, a six figure plus decision, like on the buyer side, you know what that number one fear is? Making a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Not just take it one step. R- ridicule further. from r- ridicule from their, from their peers. Well, they're afraid they're getting fired. That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's that mistake, but it's, it's that like mistake with like a saber tooth tiger sitting next to your head. Like I'm going to get fired right. if I mess up on this. Right. So precisely. Um, yeah. So, and then the, the bigger the stakes, the more that that happens. But so, I think that's I think that's that's um that's great perspective and especially because you're creating a new category where there's that doubt because it's it sounds like it's snake oil like it's too good to be true for mm-hmm. for people so they have a hard time wrapping their head around it so so let's rewind a little bit so it, it sounds like you're doing some amazing things the growth's happening you're getting funding so so talk to us about the journey here like how did you get here how did how did it happen. So, uh, as you mentioned, so the serial entrepreneur thing, I, I grew up homeschooled. And so, uh, and I was a very independent person from a very young age. And uh, eventually when I went to college, uh, didn't come from a family of lots of means. So I had to fund it myself. And I, had, I so between, 
ever since I was homeschooled, the way that I made money was just doing, uh, was, was working on my own things. And that was at the beginning, it was just uh, tutoring. It was um, tutoring people and things that I knew how to do well and in subjects I had a very good understanding of. And then later um, I would get calls about from people saying, Hey, does your company, do you have people who can tutor X, Y, and Z? And I didn't, um, I didn't speak Spanish for instance. So I realized, well, I don't, but I could find somebody who does. And so eventually I, made, I turned that into a services company. And then from there it became much more productized and became a product company. And um, so there were several companies that I founded, all of which kind of went from service to product. And I, I really just realized that that's really what I love doing. Um, my goal from from being a kid was to try, try to have the, the most powerful, positive impact that I can on humanity. And I think that, you know, there's, there's so many people who don't get the opportunity to... Um, unleash their full potential and do so in a positive way. And th those who do, there, there, there are a number of people who do, but there, you can look back in history and see a handful that really stick, um, stand out, like you know, whether it's uh, Newton uh, or Einstein on the science uh, front, or it's um, uh, Henry Ford or Tesla on the, um, on the business front. And you can see the amazing impact that they had later you know, throughout the course of their lives. And how different the world is now. And so I thought if I could marry those two, you know, business and, uh, and progress uh, or in, in technology, then that to me, it felt like the most exciting route to take to get, have the biggest effect that I could. Initially, I was very science focused and I studied at Harvard, but just for a semester, because after being there for a semester, I realized, I mean, love the subject matter, but this isn't going to have the impact that I want. If I'm a, become an astrophysicist, it's not going to be direct enough or potentially won't be. And I really was enjoying the business part of what I was doing. And so I decided to go into business. Um, I wanted to get another degree and I wanted to spend time abroad. I moved over to Germany, uh, took the uh, German bar. So I actually went to did law in Germany uh, in German, which was not easy and <laughs> much more stressful than I needed to make it on myself. Uh, all about the while looking for the right thing, the 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 magnum opus, if you will, that I thought that would achieve would be the right thing for me to focus on to have that impact. And the idea for Fizna came from a problem I ran into in law school, which was uh, my focus was patent law. We weren't able to find the source of certain patent infringements that were clearly cases where CAD models or 3D models were stolen, and although we could do that with pictures and music and we had you know and plagiarism that wasn't possible in 3d did research into the technology that was available at the time tried out everything that had the word geometric or shape or 3d <laughs> in it anywhere and none of it really worked it wasn't actually using 3d it was basically just trying to um, learn from the metadata or uh, maybe picture recognition but it just was not effective at all and so uh, some of the principles that I remembered from back when I was in the, in the science area, when, when I was in astrophysics, uh, helped to inspire a different way of thinking. And then eventually that led to the algorithms that made FISNA what it is. The use case, though, when we brought it to market was, um, you know, I, I, I actually thought that we had failed, that I had gone into debt and we didn't raise money at the beginning. It was all personally funded. Uh, I thought that the whole thing was a failure when I went out to a, this big conference that where I talked to hundreds of people about what we could do. And I, and I promoted this, this the, the use case at the time was protecting intellectual property and finding a way to monetize that by giving people rights on that, which could be verified through the uh, image or the, the part recognition. And they kept saying, that's interesting, but if you can do that, could you help us with something else? And I knew at that point in my life already, like, hey, it's you got to focus. You can't do all these different things. Um, and they're just 
geeking out with me. This is this is a weird reaction to have, but it's not helpful. But then the phone started ringing more and more and more, and the use cases kept building up. Um, we realized that we had both a, a, a huge opportunity and a huge risk at the same time, and that is that FISNA can it bridges the, a really major gap. It's bridging the gap between what's physical and digital. It's kind of like taking software from binary to trinary, if you will. It, it gives computers a way to think in true 3D and do all the uh, the um, perform all the same functions they can uh, they can in a two dimensional space based like with text in a three dimensional world or in a physical world. And that meant that there were hundreds of applications. And then it became a, a, a real journey to figure out what to focus on. And after you know, exploring that for a couple of years, really diving deep into several different use cases, we decided the best entry point was engineering. That's, you know, that's the imagination part of, uh, of creating products. It's the very beginning of a product's life cycle. And that's how we ended up focusing on what we focus on today. Oh, all right. There's, gonna, there's a lot of questions I have after this. So I, I love that story. And so I'm going to fire some of these at you. So um, when you're looking at, you said the algorithm that created your solution was based on first principles in astrophysics. You know, I read I read Ray Dalio's book on, on principles. You hear Elon Musk talk about first principles. What were those first principles like? What, I mean, and, and what I would say is let's give the uh, the, the third grade level, right? <laughs> what you're going to talk about. It's super complicated. But yeah, like what were the what were the first principles that really you're like, hey, I can apply this here over there? It's, it, it wasn't a copy paste from astrophysics into FISNA by any means. It was just inspired by it. Uh, if you think about, imagine that you're a space traveler, right? You're out in outer space and traveling around. Um, well, space is obviously not two-dimensional. It's not flat. This is three-dimensional. So a 2D map wouldn't do you much good. Constellations right. aren't going to help yeah. you very much, right? So you'd have to build a 3D map. Well, if you're really, and if you have this infinite space around you, how do you know where you are, right? I mean, what's the point of reference? So uh, the way that you would do that is by, is you would essentially create neighborhoods. Well, I know that these um, these stars or galaxies or what have you, and this relationship to another, um, they essentially build these these neighborhoods. They build this this, this pattern throughout the universe, and that's how you can navigate. Um, the way that we so that's kind of was the uh, the very small concept that inspired FISNA in a very simplified way. The best way for me to explain how FISNA thinks and how we got there was instead, obviously, we don't have a universe in every part in the world. Um, but the, the analogy I like to use, and maybe this makes sense, maybe it doesn't, but it, I, it seems to most more often than not, yeah. if I were to take my coffee mug here and I were yeah. to, um, instead of it being made out of metal or ceramic, it'd be made out of um, glass. I mean, sorry, glass, sorry, ice. It was frozen water, just ice. And you'd be able to see, at least with an electron microscope, all of these these small fractures and crystalline structures everywhere. So just imagine if those crystalline structures were always there in the exact same way as if and so long if and um, under the assumption that um, to the extent that that part is the same shape and size. Any any change to the shape, any uh, features, any deviations would then change that pattern. If that were the case, I could take this um, this coffee mug, I could throw it against the wall, pick up a random piece of the coffee mug and by by inspecting the, uh, the crystalline structure that I happened to pick up, know exactly what that was, where it belonged, and I could put the coffee mug back together again mathematically, mm -hmm. right? Uh, obviously, there's a lot involved in that process, and it's, but, but that is essentially how we're thinking. We're, we're truly creating a mathematic signature for every part that exists, and that's why we use the analogy of DNA. 
because it's all about how things are related to each other. That's awesome. I love that. Super involved. I love it. Okay, so so going forward a little bit now, and I, I love bringing physical to digital. I love that concept. So you, you mentioned you researched it and a lot of different use cases and applications and years, you said, a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then you decided on, on engineering and CAD. So like, why did you know that that was the route you should go? Was it, did you, did you look at the TAM? Did you like, how, how, how did that, like, why was that where you stuck, you know, and, and decided to roll with? Uh it was not immediately a clear and obvious decision. And uh, I'm a big believer in focusing on one thing and then doing it really well versus trying to do everything for everyone. Um, at the same time, I'm a big believer in adaptability and listening to what people are, what the market's telling you. So the reason it took us a while to get there was because it's not like we were just sitting around thinking all day. We were proactively going and selling. At one point, it was ins- inspection automation or quality control, you know, things that we knew our software could do really well. But in the case of quality control, at least back then, 3D scanners are much further along now, but when we were, you know, testing, um, when we were going to market with this, uh, there was a huge demand and, and, and the TAM there, I would argue is actually larger, but, um, or at least it was at the time. And the problem that we ran into though, was these companies did not have the right machines. They didn't have the scanners that they would need to actually let our software do its job. And because of that, uh, we had a, essentially the decision was we can't afford to be a hardware salesman of some uh, sales group of other someone else's product in order to sell our software. That's just, it's not a, a good business model. And so we looked through the different use cases and we spoke with a lot of people. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of conversations with, with, uh, with companies and their, um, and the, and the various departments that had interest in us. And we found that the fastest uh, deployment where we could have um, an impact the, the earliest was engineering. And part of it was simply that they had the models. You know, any other approach was going to require getting them involved in most cases. Also, the they had um, they were more aware of the impact that you know this under that this understanding of three D could have on them. Whereas other parts of the company, as soon as they they get it, they get it. I mean, it's not it's not super hard to get it once you've seen it in action. But a lot of them were kind of afraid of the. As soon as we said three D, they would say, "Oh, that's not relevant to me. I, I don't do three D. I've never touched three D." You know, um, it's it, it sounded too foreign or too abstract. Now that's changing very rapidly. I mean, we're talking. You know, Facebook became Meta, and everything's Metaverse, and everything in the Metaverse is going to be is going to be three D. Um, so our interaction with three D is certainly on the uh, on the rise, but still, your average professional would say three D sounds like something too foreign for me to touch. And that's how we decided to focus on engineering. The demand was there and the market was telling us this is the fastest way to have an impact on the company. That's good. I love that. So we're we're getting close on time. I got a couple more quick questions for you, though. So sure. to round things out, because like I said, there's a lot of different ways we could go with this. But um, for you, you've had a lot of success. You've gotten funding. You've you've developed multiple products. I love how you productize things. What would you say is your your number one ninja skill to growing revenue? Like, what's your framework? How how do you mentally approach it? I think for us, the biggest thing was finding what the right use case was. So it was listening uh, to the uh, to the audience and determining what the real problem was, and then using that feedback uh, 
and as part of a whole rather than generalizing one person's opinion you know you get enough feedback to where we can actually figure out what are we actually solving for and then work with the customers once you actually have that that's not yet revenue but that's how you find the right fit when it comes to revenue for us what's important is showing companies that it's real so the this the skill if you will that we've developed here is rather than trying to rely too much on you know, fancy marketing, uh, uh, or, or I mean, not that we don't have marketing, but rather than overly relying on abstract descriptions or um, analogies, to really just show people directly, this is what it does. You have to experience it, and once you do it, it speeds things up. So uh, when we go into a company, the first thing is identifying, you know, what's the problem we're solving? I mean, is there a problem? Um, normally there is. Uh, and then, okay, what's the ROI that we're going, that they can expect from this tool? And how do we convince them that, that it's real? And to do that, we just, we show them the solution immediately. And to scale that, you have to have that uh, systematized, right? So it's not, so you kind of can anticipate what questions are going to come before they come and you're addressing them ahead of time. And so we spent a lot of the past year or two really systematizing that approach. And now it's a lot faster when somebody uh, shows interest in FISNA for us to get them to go through those steps rather than, you know, waiting for them to ask for a step or, or, or us having to ask what the next, you know, you talk about the next step. So that's been the approach for us. Uh, there are other more generalizable skills I'm sure that we could talk about, but for us specifically, um, that has been the approach that has proven to be effective. Excellent, man. I love it. So I'm going to do, we're, we're just about up on time. So I'm going to do a quick fast fire with some, some quick questions for you, and then we'll wrap things up. So what's your favorite book you read over the last two years? Zero to one. Zero to one. Okay. Yeah. I read that book by, uh, it's, it's a great book. What's your favorite podcast or show? Favorite podcast or show. Um, uh, there's one, um, that has, I forget the name of it, but it, it, it's, uh, put on by a VC. I have to look it up for you. So, um, I also, to be honest with you, really enjoy um, a lot of stand-up. Uh, sometimes you find it in, in podcasts and otherwise, but I think sometimes it's good to unwind and have well, and me, humor is a good way to do that. Give me the so stand-up one, man. Sorry? Give me the stand-up podcast. It doesn't need to be all serious here. I got Chris Farley behind me in a picture, you know? Uh, that's a good one. I, I don't really, I don't really, to be honest with you, I don't really subscribe to any, uh, like for, for stand up or comedy, I don't okay. subscribe to any specific thing. I just kind of browse until I find something that's funny. So I can't really point out a name, but I think the genre of stand up and comedy in general can be very, um, um, effective for unwinding and it's, viewing things in a positive way. It's a good release for work. I love stand up for sure. I'm going to see one this weekend. All right. Um, who's your favorite founder or CEO you follow? Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Yeah. It's hard to, him, him and Steve Jobs are the ones that come up most often. Okay. And then what's your favorite online tool that you could not live without? I mean, this isn't uh, an exciting one to say, but honestly, if we didn't have um, the Google suite, I don't know what I would do. I, I do almost everything through Gmail or Google calendars at the moment. Yeah. Same thing here. Okay. Well, excellent, Paul. It was a pleasure having you on. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about FISNA and some of the cool things that you're doing? Yeah, if you are interested in FISNA, it's, uh, our website's uh, FISNA.com, so P-H-Y-S-N-A.com. Um, you can you try out some of our technology at Thangs.com, T-H-A-N-G-S, which is totally free, .com. And um, if you're interested in reaching out to me, uh, just look up Paul Powers FISNA on LinkedIn, and I'm more than happy to chat. Excellent, Paul. It was a pleasure having you on the show. I love the, just your mental models and the way that you kind of view things just offered a truly unique perspective. So thanks for coming on, man. 
Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for checking out the Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.